0: Welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast, product of Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture. I'm Jackson Stansel,
1: And I'm Samantha Teton. And we come to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture.
0: Through interviews and panels with experts, producers, and innovators from all sectors of digital technology, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Hello and welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast. This episode marks the beginning of our Precision Crop Protection Series in which we will investigate the technologies that are starting to revolutionize the way that we approach crop protection. It is also the first time that we will have a new co-host joining me here on the Farm Bits Podcast. Zach Rystrom is a Doctor of Plant Health student here at the University of Nebraska and is interning with the On Farm Research Network for the summer. Welcome, Zach, and we're really glad to have you here on the podcast.
2: Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: On this episode of the podcast, we are welcoming Dr. Eric Christian, Agronomic Services Manager at Trace Genomics.
2: Trace Genomics is enabling greater insights about the biology and chemistry that interacts within soil to drive forward management decisions tailored to the particular potential and risk within a given field.
0: Dr. Christian discusses Trace Genomics how they're revolutionizing the way that growers approach crop protection and how they're seeking to be enabling data set for advanced analytics and insights in agriculture.
2: There's a lot of interesting content in this episode, so let's get right to our end. I'm
3: actually, so I mentioned I'm in Ames, Iowa. I'm at our lab, which used to be called Solum. Okay. Oh yeah, I heard of Solum, yeah. Yeah, so Solum was a, another startup. It started in, in Mountain View, California. And uh, eventually they they sort of started a, a brick and mortar lab here in Iowa when they realized, you know, sending soil samples to San Francisco is a little bit of a risky <laughs> thing to do. So.
0: Absolutely. So did Trace Genomics then develop out of the old Solemn, uh, or solemn labs or is it a totally new venture? or Some of the same yeah. people crossed over? What was the deal there?
3: Yeah, so, so I was based in this lab. When, so I, before Trace Genomics, I worked for Winfield United. Okay, and I was based out of this um this lab and got the opportunity to go to trace genomics and at the time in, in twenty nineteen our main offices and labs were in San francisco, okay, and again, so we' here we are sending thousands and thousands of pounds of Iowa, you know nebraska, Minnesota <laughs> soil to san francisco and it, it, it's maybe not the greatest idea, and anyway, we got the opportunity. Um, to To purchase Solem in in March of 2020, okay, and and so we did. So we really merged the two together. Um, ended up closing our office and labs down in San Francisco. Moved all of the the lab processing yeah. here. Um, most of the folks um, that worked in our facilities in California just went remote. So um, they're all working from home. And now um, we send California samples to Iowa <laughs> instead of sending Iowa soil to. To
2: California. So So what exactly is Trace Genomics and what products and services does it offer to its customers?
3: Yeah so so Trace Genomics is an ag tech startup. It was founded in 2015 by two uh, Stanford graduates Um, and really the initially the company was focused on um, taking soil samples and extracting the DNA of organisms like fungi and bacteria And then sequencing all that DNA and and giving those results back to to growers and agronomists really to help drive more uh, sustainable management. Uh, And so that's really the fundamental or foundational technology for trace genomics. But over time, we've really expanded. I can talk about that here a little bit more in a minute. But what do you do with that uh, fungi and bacteria quantification? And so one of the main things we do is uh, as you can imagine, we quantify pathogens. So what we're doing, is take your favorite fungi or bacterial pathogen, and what we're doing is quantifying the inoculum level in the soil. Um, one thing we also do is, uh, if you think about nutrient cycling, think about mm. nitrogen cycling, for example, uh, a fair bit of that is is biologically driven. So if we're going to quantify the fungi and bacteria, we're also going to quantify those organisms involved in, let's say, uh, the process of nitrification, for example, and uh, quantify those organisms. And again, we're not um, one distinction. We're quantifying the inoculum level. We're quantifying the organisms involved in nutrient cycling, but we're not quantifying the activity necessarily. That's certainly something that we're we're moving toward. But we want to be very clear that we're we're quantifying the amount of organisms in that soil sample. Uh, and then finally, uh, something that we've added more recently. Uh, is the quantification of a lot of the the standard fertility parameters, pH, buffer pH, CEC, organic matter, and so on and so forth. So one of the things I I think um, really differentiates us from traditional soil testing is not only the fact that we extract that DNA and sequence those organisms, but that we also have a data set that includes um, those, those chemical parameters, as we call them, pH and things like that. And we have a really fantastic data science group where we'll take all that data and we'll work with our customers to really understand the situation and to look at the interactions the best we can uh, with the data we have, have today. So again, traditional soil testing lab, you take the samples, you drop them off there. And at the end of the processing, they give you some data. Sure. Um, our interaction with the customer starts much earlier than that. And this is actually one of the things that, that I do at Trace Genomics. I work with our customers to really design an appropriate sampling plan to help them collect the samples, to get them shipped to our lab here in Ames, Iowa. Um, and then when the results are ready, I work with them to help interpret that data to help understand what it means. Gotcha. Um, you know, if you get a phosphorus value back, let's say an Olson phosphorus or Bray phosphorus value back, you can lean on 50, 60, 70 years of you know, university research and correlation calibration data to say, okay, I know exactly how much MAP or DAP I need to put on. Sure. When I give you a quantification of, let's say, uh, Goss's will, uh, you can't go to any researcher and say, well, what do I do with this value? Yeah. All right? So mm-hmm. we have to work really closely with our customer to help uh, interpret these values and to help drive those management decisions. One interesting thing, this is a bit anecdotal, but um, when we take a soil sample, and we extract the DNA of the fungi and bacteria from that soil sample, and we run it against our bioinformatics database. So it's got all the genome assemblies and everything that we, uh, we check for. Um, typically, uh, we're only able to classify about 10% of the DNA in the soil sample. Wow! So that means 90% <laughs> of the DNA, just the fungi and bacteria that we extract from a soil sample, uh, at this point, maybe it's not unknown, but it hasn't been sequenced, and uh, genome has been made available. Wow. So there's a tremendous amount we still don't know. But think about that. ninety percent of the organisms in that soil sample, um, for, for at the very least haven't had haven't been sequenced and wow. probably haven't been cultured and identified. So uh, and they're doing something. They wouldn't be there. I've taken enough biology and ecology to know that they're <laughs> they're serving some function. Sure, um, and they're probably interacting with all those organisms that we uh, are interested in. They're probably interacting with all those biological products that we, we put on and in furrow or uh, soil applied. Um, they're probably interacting with the seed treatments, fungicide seed treatments that we're putting out there. So the more we start to know about these, be able to very least quantify, know and quantify these organisms, um, the more we'll we'll be able to start learning about the soil and all the interactions. But well, I tell you, we're, we're at the, I mean, there's been a lot of soil microbiologists have been working diligently for a long time, over probably over hundred and plus years, but um, using molecular techniques uh, in soil microbiology at this scale is, is a really new thing.
0: Sure. And, and one thing that you mentioned there, which I think is where we should probably start, because that's where everything starts, right, is the soil sampling. And so, Mm -hmm. when you talk about putting together one of these soil sampling plans, um, and I guess coming at this from a precision ag point of view, I mean, we know there's a lot of spatial variability within a field. And I assume that there's a decent amount of spatial variability in terms of uh, maybe different fungi or bacteria in the soil. And so, how exactly do you design those soil sampling plans in terms of, you know, uh, spatial locations, depths, and all that sort of stuff to provide you the information that you want to to have to work with a grower?
3: Well, yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Jackson. There There is a lot of um, variability in, in, in a lot of soil parameters, not just the biological ones, but folks are not as used to uh, sampling for the biological parameters. So really, we're just starting in this journey to understand what's going on in the soil biology. There's only a few companies that have this technology and that, that it's commercially available. So we're really all writing the book on this. And so sure. one of the things that I, I like to start off with saying is is like any company and any startup, we want to be disruptive, but we don't want to disrupt everything. So when it comes to sampling, I like to align sampling the best I can with what folks are already doing. Gotcha. I would say, you know, so um, if I came in and said, okay, um, I want you to sample in, in August in a cornfield in Nebraska, <laughs> I want you to take 80 cores per sample, and I want them to be to a depth of two inches. And <laughs> and you know you know nobody's going to want to do this, yeah. right? right? So I we first start off the conversation with what do you do? What do you do today? How's your standard fertility sampling? Um, and start to get an understanding of what folks are doing today, and then and then make sure we align um, or modify that sampling to uh, what they're looking for in the soil biology. If it's purely exploratory, well then we sort of have to be, uh, you know we have to sort of aim for the middle. If we know we want to look for a specific organism or we're, we're trying to solve a specific problem, well then we, we align it. But sort of um, one of the big things that doesn't change um, between what folks are used to now and, and what we're trying to do uh, is the fact that uh, when we get a sample, we want it to be a composite soil sample. So it has multiple cores sure. that are distributed uh, in an area and we want that soil sample to be roughly one pound, four to five hundred grams. So that that looks no different. Our bags that uh, we get in in our lab here look no different than the bag of soil that you collect today. Now, the strategy of how we collect that, as you mentioned, the depth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how many cores, uh, where where we're going to get that sample, certainly is uh, can vary from what folks are used to. Um, so even the depth, uh, you know, depth. <laughs> You start looking into soil testing and soil fertility the depth that we soil sample in Iowa was a different depth than they soil sample in indiana interesting and you know it, and it really has to do with that correlation and calibration it has to do with historically what folks um you know deemed was the depth of incorporation of nutrients and lime right. and things like that so you know t- talking to folks in nebraska you know most often we're going to be collecting a sample that's probably zero to six inches sure which is pretty common um probably when you're talking about a six inch sample you're you're probably looking at 10 to 12 cores would make a nice a nice sample um you know folks that are uh, um really in a hurry and and have thousands and thousands of acres to do typically will do less than 10 cores but that's what we like to do and uh you know then you get into the grid versus zone and that's a bit of a religious question in my opinion (laughs) people have uh, a lot of opinions and Feelings about that, and both are or work well in, in in different scenarios. But zone is w- where we can really dial it in for for sampling for biology, right? Sure. If we know again what organism we're really interested in, we can design those zones to to really capture that variability, that spatial variability, um, and make sure we find that organism. So, for example, if we're out hunting for a pathogen, let's say gosses will, because it's something that certainly a lot of folks in Nebraska have been been battling for a long time.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, What decision are we going to be enabling? You know, we probably variety selection, rotation, things like that. Tillage, you know, that's obviously a way to to combat that. So what information do we need to find from a soil sample that can help drive those decisions? Sure. Should I plant continuous corn? Do I need to, you know, as as hybrids become uh, more tolerant to to disease, do I need to, to consider that as a management tactic? And so sure. um, if we took, let's say one soil sample per field, we run the risk of not finding the problem, right? Absolutely. But if we say have two, three, four samples available to us, where can we strategically place those samples to make sure that we find maybe the levels of high inoculum that can help, help drive the decisions? Um, we're a technology, I think that um, we're a bit out uh, from really um, being implemented at a grid scale, let's say is as fine as 2.5 acre resolution. Mm-hmm. We've done plenty of fields at that resolution. It's extremely cool to see that data. I imagine. But, um, but we got to get to a point where that's uh, cost effective
2: and, uh, and really zones a nice way. So uh, some of the applications uh, that you've mentioned already, or, uh, you know, testing for pathogens, uh, testing for nutrient cycling microbes, uh, what are some of like the potential other, uh, applications? Cause I know microbes are involved in a lot of, a lot of processes such as, uh, uh, microbial breakdown of pesticides, um, pest control as well, such as, uh, BT, um, And then also, what about maybe like the environment that the microbes are living in? Uh, Is there anything that you're working with to maybe alter the environment based on management practices to favor some microbes or um, maybe harm others that are negative, like a pathogen?
3: Yeah, it's a a great question, Zach. And and, uh, really today where Trace Genomics is at is we're really an enabling data set or or technology to to go down the road that you just mentioned. Now we don't specifically at trace genomics um, work in those areas where we're actually uh, recommending approaches or even sometimes digging into some of the questions that you've asked, but we work very closely with a lot of folks who do that ask the same questions that you just asked how now that we can quantify and perhaps get a baseline of what's going on in in soil biology. How can we start to understand that better and to use that um, to really be better managers, right? And so one of the things we do uh, along that line, we really have a a few main uh, areas of customers. Of course, the the logical one is we we work closely with agronomists and growers, right? Working to to drive better management decisions. But another thing we also do, we work a lot with um, product manufacturers. Of biological manufacturers, helping them understand how two things: how their product impacts the, the soil microbiome, and also on the other side, how does the soil microbiome impact the efficacy of their products? So, two two ways you can look at that, um, because we have this amazing technology that allows us to really to really do that. And so, that's one of the things that um, that we're really working on. When you start going down the road of some of these really interesting questions about, uh, you know, suppressed disease, suppressive soils, and all these really cool things, a lot of that research right now is coming out of academia, and, and they're really focused on very tiny and very specific questions. Um, and so uh, we also hope to uh, enable that that sort of research as well. But really, today where we're at, Zach is is really a tool to help enable a lot of that. Um, A lot of our internal R&D is is very much uh, collaborative with folks. Like, as as I mentioned, agronomists, with product manufacturers, um, and and really goes to the level of um, we've done some modeling work looking at pathogens. So if you think about what I mentioned earlier, uh, we quantify uh, the inoculum level. Well, if I recall back to my plant pathology courses, and Zach, you're a, you're a DPH student. What, mm-hmm. what
2: do we what do we really got to consider? What are the three things we got to consider? Well, there's a disease triangle that includes the environment, the host, and the pathogen.
3: Yeah. So, genomics, we, we know that we do a pretty good job on one of those. Um, I'm not the world's greatest agronomist, but I can know <laughs> what the crop is when I walk into a field. So <laughs> then we have that environmental piece, right?
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: And so that's really a big part of it. Is is if you have a high inoculum level, that doesn't mean you have imminent infection and you have yield loss, right? It's not, and so we know that, um, and we're working on uh, various efforts to model out uh, certain pathogens in certain situations to better understand uh, using our our technology, what's going on. Now, uh, I also like to think that even this step of quantifying the inoculum level is, I always ask people, You know, um, what do you do today? If you have soybean sudden death syndrome, for example, if you took a soil sample, where would you send that to to get the quantification of the inoculum level? And you can't, there's nowhere to send it. So already that first step is a big step. And just being able to to quantify the organisms in that soil sample. And we know we can do better by creating models and helping drive uh, very, very specific recommendations, but it, it takes time.
0: Sure. Now that's I think that that opens a whole new field of questions for this interview. Just thinking about kind of the data aspect and, and thinking about trace genomics as kind of an enabling technology. How how exactly are y'all leveraging the data that comes out of individual fields and, and kind of what you know about that field alongside? And I don't even know. I guess kind of to start, are you even aggregating data? and bringing it all together in kind of a, a way that machine learning or something along those lines could be leveraged to figure out, okay, these environmental conditions, this pH, this soil mm-hmm. temperature is, is related to this certain inoculum level and actually the presence of disease once we get to say R2 and corn. I mean, is, are those things that you're, you're working towards right now?
3: Yeah, no, that's a great question, Jackson. And so that's why I wanted to make a point that we, we do have a data science group at, at Trace Genomics and and we're not just a traditional lab in the sense of we're just a data generator. We're a partner all the way through, and we're also an R and D organization at the same time. And so, uh, I mean, our, our our folks in our data science group I, they can do things I can't even imagine. Like my, my the end of my statistical ability, like ends with the, the, the last A in ANOVA, right? I, I mean, I'm, I'm done after that. And they're using these really fancy uh, machine learning techniques and 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 applying that to really look at our data set and, and try to understand what's going on. Because if you think about every soil sample that we um, capture, if we're gonna extract the DNA of the fungi and bacteria and sequence that, that's a massive amount of data right there. Mm-hmm. And then you add in um, you know, the, the chemical parameters and, and we do a very comprehensive panel of, of chemi- chemical parameters in the soil. And then you start in adding other layers, productivity, um, uh, you know, whether it's yield or, or imagery, Uh, as-applied layers, uh, you name it, and it becomes a fairly hefty data set that really needs some some good statistical techniques to tackle. Now, what do we do today from the customer standpoint that you get with every sample? Mm -hmm. Uh, We do aggregate the data uh, anonymously at the the national level, Um, and what we do is what we call benchmarking. Um, And basically, we'll take all that data, let's say for for corn or soybean, so that uh, when samples come to us, the folks collecting the samples have uh, identify the the past crop and the current crop. Um, they identify if they're sampling in season or out of season. They they uh, typically were supplied the GPS coordinates of the uh, the center probably of a composite sample, and we have all this this information. So what we might do is take all the corn samples and we'll aggregate that data. And we'll create benchmarks. And so, what the benchmarks are is, uh, as Zach mentioned, we have uh, good good IPM principles such as the disease triangle, but we also have economic thresholds, economic injury levels, and things like that. And uh, currently, we're, we're we're always working on capturing that data. But until that time, why don't we tell folks where you where your samples lay in, in relation to everybody else's? Sure. Right. So yep. so what we do is actually we fix a, a benchmark um that you can compare the data from your samples to all of the corn samples that we've received now to take that to another level um we work with with folks um uh from from the gulf of mexico all the way up into canada and let's say they're soybean producers mm-hmm. so here i'm in arkansas one day talking to a soybean producer then i'm in southern illinois i'm in iowa i'm in north dakota and i'm comparing the amount of Uh, soybean sudden death syndrome or phytophthora or white mold um, from one day to the next to the next across those geographies the folks in Arkansas are going to say other than the fact that we're both growing soybeans uh, there's a lot of difference to North Dakota to to Arkansas right so why are you comparing my pathogen levels uh to theirs and so what we've done over time as we've um uh, really collected a lot of samples from a wide variety of areas is we've created what we call smart benchmarks. Nice. So smart benchmarks uh, are still an aggregation of data across numerous farms and growers. Um, but what we're doing is aggregating at the level of like soil properties, soil parent material, environment and cropping systems. Mm-hmm. So you can say, well, you're not necessarily comparing to the field next year's, but you're comparing it apples to apples. Right. I'm comparing all the soil samples that are collected in southeast North Dakota. Sure. Or I'm comparing all the soil samples that are collected in northeast Arkansas. But I'm not comparing the two. Right. And so, you know, that that was one of the lessons I learned a long time ago when I was in the (laughs) seed industry. Talk about this idea of yield stability and hybrids and varieties. Right. This hybrid did great across five states and, you know, it just kicked, kicked everything, you know, and, and inevitably, the grower would say, well, I really want plot results from the nearest plot, you know, in the no. county or whatever. I don't care if this hybrid did well over five states in three years. I want to know <laughs> what it did. Right next know, door. Next to my yep. farm, right?
4: Yep.
3: So it's no different than pathogens. You don't want to compare what's going on in northeast Arkansas to what's going on in North Dakota.
0: Sure. I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's the smart benchmarking is is." it's it's just kind of a crazy concept and i know farmers really like to get a lot of feedback i mean have you have you had any farmers that ask you if the data can be used negatively against them i'm just gonna, i'm going to play devil's advocate and say like you know in in this data security you know place that we are in digital agriculture a farmer's worried that okay if i know that i have this disease is this going to be something that you know crop insurance or or somebody else my banker is going to know about and it could potentially adversely affect me? I, I, I don't know. I just, how, how secure is that data? I guess, that trace genomics is generating.
3: So sort of a similar scenario to if I send my DNA off to 23andMe and then next day they give it to my health insurance company <laughs> yeah. and
4: I'm unsure exactly. yeah. of the same thing. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a very um, viable concern, but um, we have a, a lot of folks in, in the company that uh, have spent a lot of time in ag tech and uh, have, have really uh, been very observant of that. And so our, our, our um, guidelines for, for sharing and for uh, technology are, are are, um, very strict in that we don't share any data. Uh, We aggregate anonymously, obviously, and some certain things like that. So we're not, um, we're not sharing. Uh, Being a startup, you know, People worry. Well, okay, today you're, you're a startup, and you you say, okay, we're not sharing your data. But what happens if a large company or somebody buys you out? Then all of a sudden, they they yep. have your data. Yep. And and uh, certainly that's a concern as as well. And uh, so that's that's a great point, um, Jackson. And and uh, we do our best to to keep people's data safe, and we don't we don't share it with anyone.
0: Sure. And I, I, I think that's the right standpoint. It's just something we always, I, I don't know, I feel like we ask a lot when people are collecting a lot of data because it is such a big deal and something I hear from a lot of farmers here mm-hmm. that they're concerned about in this new digital age that we're in.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, this is probably something you've, you've covered on other podcasts with people that are much more astute than I am in, in, in this area, but who paid for the data? Who literally gave you the money? And that then that's that person's data, right? Correct. Um, yep. and there's a lot of nuances to that, but I I I believe that that's really the way it is. I, I'm a farmer, and I, I've you know worked with a lot of different programs and different platforms, and you know I pay uh, for that service. That's that's my my data, and I, I don't want it to be sold to anybody.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, am I naive enough to think that those companies aren't using it um, to to learn more? To, to create, you know, aggregated, aggregated, you know, anonymous insights, sure. But uh, for them to sell it off, that's, that, that's not something that uh, a lot of growers would be excited about. What, what does it look like for
0: a customer on the, uh, who's receiving a trace genomics report? What, what are they able to go in and see? What do those uh, recommendations or uh, measurements look like to them? And, and how actionable is that really for them uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the field?
3: Yeah. So uh, today, if you, you collect a soil sample, um, we'll enter, as I mentioned, we, we asked for a bit more information than your, your standard soil testing lab would. Mm-hmm. We want to know a, a bit about the cropping history. Um, we want to know the depth of the soil sample, the data was collected, um, also the GPS coordinates for that soil sample. Um, and then you're able to upload a shape file boundary and also zone boundaries, if, if you have them, hmm. into our customer portal. And when the results are ready, whether it's, uh, you know, the quantification of pythium or the quantification of nitrification or pH, all that information is geospatially rendered in our our online customer portal. Uh, And so people are able to manipulate that. We do a bit of um, sorting and uh, surfacing of issues there as well. Um, uh, For example, for a pathogen, uh, our quantification of pathogens, that inoculum level is uh, in parts per billion. So folks that are used to traditional soil testing, you know, you might get your Bray phosphorus in parts per million or your, your uh, potassium value. Um, when we report our pathogens, we report those as an absolute quantification in parts per billion. And so you can see geospatially rendered that that map. Um, and then we also do a bit of um, rolling up to the field level to be able to, to uh, like I mentioned, surface issues. Like, okay, mm-hmm. you have a field that has really... Uh, A hotspot for goss as well okay you need to take a look at this first Um, versus fields where we have uh, less inoculum where you may not need to focus on it right away all that data is available all the time it's just that uh, there's a lot of parameters we want people to sort of help uh, we want to help folks sort through that Um, as i mentioned uh, we have a lot of ways to get the data out whether it's a pdf report or a csv file if folks want to Take that data and put it into their favorite fmis
4: sure
3: um, but we also have a, a view where you can do some sorting and filtering it's a it's our, our legacy portal and it's, it's a bar chart um you're able to sort by farms and fields and different parameters in order to manipulate the data now one thing you you asked about uh were recommendations and we actually we don't produce any recommendations today the closest thing would be the benchmarks that we talked about uh-huh. earlier um you know, creating uh, fertility recs or, you know, um, creating uh, vertebrate prescriptions and things like that is not something we do. We, we're happy to work with folks. Uh, we do have um, uh, APIs with a few of the major um, softwares uh, that folks can, can grab our data and, and run them into those programs and to, uh, to create recs, but we don't do that today. Uh, obviously it's something that we're extremely interested in and we're working on it and, and you know we're we cover a, a fair bit of the united states from apples and lettuce to corn soybeans cotton uh you know we really rely on that local expertise to to take it that last mile and but we'll work with those folks mm-hmm. we may not write recs but we work with folks who do and enable them to use our information to really drive those decisions. That's awesome. And so it's not that we don't um, we don't want to do that, and that we couldn't. I mean, we have a really beautiful uh, platform to allow us to do that. Sure. It's just that we really want to put the data in the hands of the, the experts and help them uh, go that, that last bit.
0: Have you heard any stories or been part of any stories that are particularly successful outcomes? That, that growers are, have had out there from using what Trace Genomics offers to them?
3: Yeah, there's a couple of ones that, that get me really excited. And uh, um, a while back, we were working uh, closely with a grower who had uh, basically more or less uh, quit growing soybeans, had a terrible time with, with soybean sudden death syndrome, and just, uh, you know, was going to sort of wait it out and, and, and mostly just focus on corn. And
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, We were able to sample a field that had been in corn for, for quite some time and to really get an idea of what the inoculum level was at that point in time in that, in that field for soybean sudden death syndrome. And we were able to get some soil samples, compare some uh, fields that had been rotated corn and soybeans uh, every year and that sort of had known levels of SDS. And really give uh, the growers peace of mind that the, the levels had been reduced in that field, and that perhaps it was uh, okay to reincorporate soybeans into that that um, rotation. You know, we all know sure. as, as, as good agronomists that continuously growing a single crop can certainly be done, and there are no laws mm-hmm. against it. But it's certainly, uh, you know, every once in a while, you you gotta break that uh, rotation and, and add something back in. There was another example that, that got, me, um, got me thinking about. And uh, as a few years ago, I was working with a grower, actually agronomist, excuse me. And we were going over the results for the first time. And I was really trying to help the agronomist understand how to interpret our results. So sure. I went through a few fields and interpreted the results. And I pulled up, um, at the time it was still bar charts, but pulled up a bar chart of another field and uh, it happened to be charcoal, rot, and soybeans. And I said, you know, looking at the, the data from this field, what, what would be your interpretation? And the, the agronomist directly looked at the, um, one of the quantifications, which was in the thousands of uh, percents of our, our benchmark value. So it was pretty high value for yeah. charcoal rot. And proceeded to pull out his phone and showed me a picture of a, plant, a soybean plant that had some extreme charcoal rot issues. And it was exactly in that area where we had found really high levels of inoculum. Um, and so that was, that was really exciting. And of course then, then people are really buying into your, <clears throat> your, your technology and, and, uh, and what, what you're doing when you, they, you can really confirm their, their knowledge of the field and what they've seen.
0: It really makes you feel good when, when a farmer can say, yeah, that's exactly what I've been seeing point to it on the map. And that, that's my problem. And
3: it, yeah. it just makes it so much more tangible. I know you're the you're the one asking the questions, but I might skip to one of your questions you asked about how can um, uh, people perform trials to test the efficacy or yeah. the validity of what we do. And I tell you what, people do that every day, and I think it's great. I mean, we want to be as open and transparent with folks about our technology as we can to build that that level of trust. And so we often get uh, we get blind samples, sure. ABC, one, two, three, you know. Um, and p- folks send them in and they know this came from an a, a a area of the field with high infestation or low infestation or, or whatever. And they send them to us to see if it tracks. I mean, we, I was just talking with one of our scientists today on some development work. We're working closely with uh, a group of agronomists and they want to test our um, capabilities out by sending us samples. And they're not going to tell us is it high or low or, or in between to see. Um, I've even had some agronomists and I, I love this. I, I, I have no problem with this. Um, you know, they, they name samples high, medium, and low, and they send them to us.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And we get results back and I'm just sitting there going, oh, well, high, medium, or low. <laughs> results are, you know, completely the opposite of what I'd see. And you go, you, I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a scientist. Scientific integrity is of utmost importance to me. The data is what the data is. And I believe in our, our process. So we take the data to the to the customer, and they go, you know, we go. It's reverse of what you, you know, high, medium, and low labels, and they go, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. We flip the labels.
0: <laughs> That's pretty and awesome. Go,
3: it, it's interesting. Now you don't expect that every time. Most people no, don't do that, yeah. but I've had a few instances where they've done that. And I, I see, so you know, it, you know, test us out. I mean, we're you know, if you think about the technology adoption curve, we're really in that the innovators, early adopters, we're we're talking with the folks that are trying all the new technologies and want to try it out. And typically um, they, they, they really enjoy these new technologies. They have a hefty skepticism, but they also give you a lot of room to run.
4: Sure. They know
3: you're not perfect. By the time you get to the average grower, the average agronomist, you got to be bulletproof, right? You got to be a technology that's really tried and proven, but um, we we worked a lot with the, the innovators. And it's a lot of fun to, to see, to see how we match up to their expectations.
0: The, the, those people help you get there. They're almost like partners in the, in the development when they push you like that and make sure that everything is, uh, I guess, performing up to their standards in a way.
4: So Exactly.
0: Where can our listeners go to learn more about trace genomics? I mean, obviously there's a website, but are there other resources you would point them to?
3: Yeah, certainly the the website is a great place to start. And, and actually that, um, uh, through that you can filter to to our sales folks or our customer service um, people um, I'm uh, always happy to ask answer any questions that that folks have um, we also have uh, uh, a few sales folks out in the in the field but a lot of the work that we're doing as I mentioned is really going through uh, agronomists through through retailers and uh, I'd be uh, happy to help folks find their their nearest retailer um, that that they may be able to to buy our uh, testing through um, and that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of us.
0: The last question that we always ask in these interviews is for some advice and I guess what is some advice that you might have for individuals that are trying to stay ahead of of disease and other problems that might be occurring in their field and and looking for that way to get their next edge over uh, over their their problems they're facing in their crops
3: sure, yeah, we're. We're always, uh, everyone's always trying to do a better job, whether it's uh, financially or agronomically, environmentally. And so, you know, these tools like what we we have at Trace Genomics to be able to take that first step. As I mentioned earlier, you know, if, if I want to send in a sample today to get quantified for soybean sudden death syndrome, you can't send it anymore or Gosses will, right? Um, so we're enabling that uh, capability and uh, uh, that first step but it's got a long way to go. And here's something interesting to think about. If we're geospatially rendering the the, uh, amount of Pythium or Phytophthora in your field, think about the different management tactics that we've just enabled. I think we just enabled um, you to be able to place varieties for uh, let's say Phytophthora and soybeans uh, in a field, in, in, you may be able to place a, a variety that has low phytophthora tolerance in one area and in areas where we find a lot of phytophthora, you may want to put a, a, a resistant variety. Same with pythium. So for example, uh, seed treatments are really, uh, have gained a lot of popularity, um, not just in soybeans, but also corn. You start to think about if you geospatially knew where there were differing amount of pythium in that field, and you could have the ability to uh, potentially um, where you put different seed treatments. Yeah. Now, what I would say is our technology is a bit out front of what people's appetite, maybe ability to do those sort of things. Sure. But if you look at ag tech and, and some of these things, it's a, it's a back and forth, right? We have equipment gets out in front of the data and then the data gets out in front of the equipment. And so it's very interesting that we have a technology. If you were able to soil sample, you could actually uh, enable some of these decisions that maybe people aren't ready to, to enact yet. Um, and so I think that's really cool because you'll see treatments, uh, on, on one hand, uh, have been pretty cost effective and, and it's pretty decent ROI there, but I think, uh, maybe one of the things will be the environmental aspects of, of some of these, uh, things it won't be necessarily that we're enabling, um, you know, folks to, um, really, really save large, large amounts of money, but maybe to be a little bit more environmentally conscious, uh, Uh, where they're they're doing some of these tactics
0: sure i think that's super interesting especially about the interplay between the machinery and kind of these these decisions and recommendations because i remember an episode we had about multi-hybrid planters and it seemed like those never seemed to really catch on in, in many places and maybe aren't even really being produced by some companies anymore but if you think about what you just talked about where you can have you know treated versus untreated seed and put those in the, in the right places. Maybe you've got two different hybrids that respond differently to different disease. I mean, all of a sudden that, that data that you've now provided makes that multi-hybrid planter worth having. Thank you very much to Dr. Eric Christian of Traceunomics for taking the time to join us on the Farm Bits podcast. I really enjoyed getting to hear uh, some of his expertise that's been gathered over many years, spending in the industry with a lot of different facets of crop production. Uh, one of the things that I thought was super interesting about the episode is, is number one, how they're leveraging data to basically create better insights for farmers through anonymized data and, and they're also providing like these specific benchmarks for farmers, um, but really I thought it was great when he got to at the very end of the episode exactly how some of these insights can be turned into management decisions to help make better use of the precision equipment that we have out in the field.
2: Yes, definitely and a lot of the agronomists, growers and other companies that uh, Eric is working with are definitely early adopters of uh, this technology, and, and they're driving agriculture forward into the future.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, It's there's a lot of cool stuff. I'm sure we'll see a lot of cool stuff from Trace Genomics here in the next few years. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as we did, and we look forward to you joining us next time here on the Farm Bits Podcast. Thanks.
1: Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the FarmBits Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week.
0: We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can be found in the show notes.
1: We'd like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond.
0: The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect reviews of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.
1: We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bids.